I'm Kelly Coffey, CEO of City National Bank. Our Conversations podcast features in-depth interviews with innovative leaders from business, entertainment, and nonprofits. Listen and learn how to succeed in what I'm calling the next normal. Now is the time to rethink, reinvent, and renew yourself and your business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very exciting episode of Conversations podcast. My name is Brandon Williams, and I lead the private banking business on the East Coast for City National. Over the past two years or so, events have pushed many of us to reflect about what we want in our lives and our careers. According to the Census Bureau, a half a million new businesses were started in January 2021 alone. The entrepreneurial journey is a difficult one, let alone taking it on amidst a global pandemic. At City National, our entrepreneurial journey began in 1954 when a small group of entrepreneurs came together to form City National to better serve entrepreneurs, professionals, and their families. Supporting entrepreneurs is something we're very familiar with. Our colleagues deliver highly personalized service and complete financial solutions to entrepreneurs. In that spirit, I'm delighted to chat with my friend and special guest, Michael Sonnenfeld. Michael is a serial entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an author, and the founder and chairman of Tiger 21, the premier membership network for high net worth individuals. He's also someone that is frequently asked to join CNBC, and other major networks to share his perspective on various topics. Michael, thank you for joining me today. It's a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about entrepreneurship, something you live and breathe. You're an entrepreneur. You started a business, you ultimately sold, and you founded Tiger 21, and you work with other entrepreneurs to help them in their journey. You're an author who writes about entrepreneurship. It's clearly in your DNA. So let's talk about being an entrepreneur. For you, what is it like being an entrepreneur? You know, being an entrepreneur means different things for different people. When I was researching my book, I tried to figure out, like, was it just the search for wealth that was driving entrepreneurs? Turns out a lot of entrepreneurs want to be successful, but very often they want to change the world or they have an idea that nobody else is willing to listen to or they can improve on something. Amazingly enough, many entrepreneurs, particularly first-generation entrepreneurs sometimes have something from their childhood that's driving them to succeed. It's amazing at Tiger. We're over a thousand members today, predominantly first-generation entrepreneurs uh, who are in the major leagues of the entrepreneurial world. What that means is if you think about major league football, baseball, basketball, if you're a major league player, you're about one in 17,000 by accomplishment. Tiger members a similar statistic are about one in 10,000 by accomplishment. The only difference is we leave the all-stars out, meaning the billionaires, which is a very small portion. Our marketplace is from 10 million to a billion people who've created that kind of wealth. And the point is that for that kind of success, sometimes they came from a broken home. Sometimes they had a childhood disease Uh, You know, somebody who got in an accident and couldn't run and then decided they could run a different way or had a I had speech impediments when I was growing up. I spent many years in speech therapy uh, and I wanted to prove that I actually knew what I was talking about. Uh, Sometimes you come from terribly broken homes, alcoholic parents. And of course, I'm in no way suggesting that you have to have a terrible childhood to be a successful entrepreneur. Drive comes from a lot of different ways, but the very simplistic notion that an entrepreneur is just out to get rich 
just doesn't comport. We have social entrepreneurs in the nonprofit world who have nothing to do with personal wealth, and they want to change the world too. And they have more in common with business entrepreneurs than you might think. So that's really a, a quick picture of who entrepreneurs are. That's really great. I heard you talk about the uh, Stanford experiment called the marshmallow task and the correlation, uh, the insights it provides about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Maybe you could just share a little bit more about that. Sure. You know, this is one of the most famous experiments of all time. Uh, but the essence of it was that a group of small children, uh, three-year-olds, if my memory is correct, were asked to sit at a table where each one had a marshmallow in front of them and was asked to sit quietly waiting for some event. And if they could wait, they would get two marshmallows. Very few of the kids were able to have the discipline to wait. The, the desire for the short-term gratification was so overwhelming that they ate the first marshmallow and the second marshmallow didn't even enter into their imagination or it was overwhelmed by the pleasure. And the point is that delayed gratification was at work in these youngsters. And then these, this cohort was tracked for 20 or 30 years. And it turns out that the few kids that at age three could delay their gratification enough to forego the first marshmallow in order to get two marshmallows throughout life had higher rates of success, both in school and in business and other indicators of success. And it really goes to the level of how important delayed gratification is and the ability to pursue long-term goals. You know, when I started at Goldman Sachs 40 years ago, they had a term that said they wanted to be long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. And whether you like that particular connotation, the point is when you're building businesses, there's always a temptation to do something in the short term. But the real winners are the ones who can look over the horizon and work long enough to fulfill a much broader vision. Uh, that's where the real success lies. When you think about your success, um, what's the secret? Or as you think back, like what do you think your secret to success has been all these years? Well, one thing is that I've been lucky enough to have a longer term view. I've literally lost money in everything I've done until I made money. And what I mean by that is uh, one of the successes, not the biggest financial success, but the one that's maybe had the most impact is I owned a solar lighting business uh, for 25 years. And I had an unblemished track record of 25 years of losses. Not many people can claim that they held on to a business that had 25 years of losses. And I'm talking about millions and millions of dollars. But eventually I found a Canadian business that was in a similar business. The first one was in solar outdoor lighting. We were way ahead of the curve. We made lights for parking lots and roadways. And I found a uh, Canadian company called Carmana that made solar powered lights for the buoys around the navigable waters of the world. You know, just like we think of Kleenex, it's actually a brand name. There's tissues made by other manufacturers that are still called Kleenex. And I think the same is true for Q-tips. In, um, in the marine buoy world, something is called a Carmana if it lights up a road uh, waterway for three miles or less, you know, the blinking red and green lights. 
although Carmana is not the only manufacturer, they it's called a Carmana precisely because of that. And I took two businesses that were really struggling, and in an act of great defiance, I tried to prove my father wrong that you can't take two rocks, tie them together, and hope they'll float. But in this case, we did just that. We took a company that had been losing money for 25 years under my excellent leadership, and then uh, took another company in Canada that was also struggling. And I was smart enough to bring in a great CEO named John Simmons. And under John's leadership, we combined the two businesses. And over the next five years, we took Carmana from something like a six or a $9 million market cap to 120 million market cap. Uh, We took the stock from 60 or 90 cents to $7.50. And it was just an extraordinary success, but it took 25 years for me to get to the point where I found Carmana and put it together. So I think one of the things that I've been successful at is taking a long-term view. You know, uh, Tiger 21 just admitted its thousandth member on my 66th birthday last month. And uh, to think that it took 22 years to get to a thousand members is pretty amazing. But it's been a, a great journey along the way. And even my first project, which was the world's largest commercial renovation, uh, something called the Harborside Financial Center, which I thought was kind of appropriate for my first project in my mid-20s. I kind of thought it was the natural order of things that I had a rude awakening. That's part of the uh, entrepreneurial journey. But even that, uh, we lost money for five years, but continued to create value. So I think I think one of the great things of some of the great entrepreneurs, there are many different forms, is really keeping your eye on the long ball and making sure that you're staying on track to creating value and not getting distracted by all the noise that occurs along the way. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Has uh, technology or access to information, how has that changed for entrepreneurs? Has it made it easier, more difficult, more competitive? When you look back, how has it changed from your perspective? It's, it's, look, it's all of the above, because when you think about you know, the kind of uh, theory that we grew up in, uh, that the stock market is efficient, the bond market is more efficient, and private equity is less efficient. That's really about information. And the more information there is, and the more players with access to information, in general, uh, the more efficient uh, a market is to be able to clear pricing uh, with the benefit of all information. But we're just living in a completely different world. The digital world today is completely different than what it was 30 years ago. We don't even remember, you know, one of my favorite stories is uh, when I started Harborside uh, in 1981 or two, we had this little gadget nobody had ever heard of called a fax machine. And I remember my law firm didn't have a fax machine. And I said to them, if you don't get a fax machine, I'm not going to be your client because I don't want to live in the uh, dark ages anymore. And 40 years later, they're still telling the story. Who could imagine a world before the fax machine? Uh, and that's 40 years ago. Think of the iPhone. And uh, you know, there's just been so many changes in the information age. One of the things that I guess is, is the big difference is 
the information age, the internet, and the digital world have all come together to create the scalability of businesses. For the first time, you know, when I was going to business school and we were mirroring products, you'd say, can you design a product that a thousand people might want or 10,000 people want? At Stanford today, if you're designing software, they say, can you design a piece of software that a billion people will want? That's just almost inconceivable, but that's the world we live in. Now, the good part is when you have products that are greaselessly scalable, for lack of a better way of saying it, you also have competitors who can do the same thing. So, you know, it's a much tougher world. It's a much bigger world. And where you used to compete more locally, now the whole world is a single marketplace in many industries. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a, a much tougher world, but one where success is much greater. And, and for better or worse, that's why you have, you know, the Amazons and the Teslas and the Jeff Bezoses and the Musks and so forth. We never could conceive of that, but there tends to be in technology a winner-take-all uh, phenomenon, and whether societally that's a good thing or not because of its implications of how a small number of people command a huge part of the wealth, it certainly is having an impact in philosophers about what a good society looks like, uh, and we'll be debating that from now till the end of time, no doubt. Before we move on to the journey, your journey on, on an entrepreneur, just talk a little bit more about that. Uh, from your experience and from talking with all of your colleagues over at Tiger 21, the members there, have you been able to identify any particular traits that successful entrepreneurs have in common? Well, there's no one size fits all, but there are certain patterns that sometimes are a little surprising. One of which is obviously most of our members are extraordinarily intelligent. But that doesn't mean that if you're extraordinarily intelligent, you're going to be successful. You know, to make sense of a, of a certain kind of world takes a lot of discipline. So beyond intelligence, you need a discipline and a kind of rootedness in what you're doing and the ability to really focus on goals. Um, let's talk a little bit about what it takes to go from an idea to a thriving, successful business and any defining moments along the way, lessons learned, failures, challenges, best practices, anything along in that category? You know, one thing that occurs to me is no matter how fantastic an idea is, there's a marketplace and many great ideas do not meet the challenge of the marketplace. So there's this tension that goes on between the confidence or overconfidence somebody has in an idea and the willingness to let it go when the market speaks so you can move on to something more productive i you know i've i think what i what i want to say is failure is a key part of success and people who don't acknowledge that put themselves at risk you know i was the co-partner i had a 50-50 partner from when I was 25 to 30 years old. And as I mentioned, we developed what was then the largest commercial renovation uh, in the world. The building itself had been the largest building in the United States when it was built in 1929, uh, eclipsed only by the Pentagon 
And that took 10 years later. I think the Pentagon uh, was put into service either in the late 30s or early 40s. And when you're 30 years old and have extraordinary success beyond your wildest dreams, you kind of assume it comes naturally. There are a lot of other ways uh, that people say it that aren't as nice. But basically, uh, you can be really too big for your britches. And the greatest thing that happened to me is that I had a failure after that. And the beauty of that was it gave me a way to look back and say, could I think about what had been successful about my particular skills and where were my skills lacking? And not just skills, experience, uh, beliefs, whatever you want to call them. So in my case, I'm a kind of uh, leader by example. I roll up my shirt sleeves. I never ask somebody to do something I wouldn't do. Well, that doesn't make me a really, at the time, it didn't make me a good remote leader. We had an operation in Atlanta, and I couldn't work any of the charm that I could work in person remotely. That's a very different skill. And even at other businesses, I'm not a particularly good manager. The disciplines that a manager has to have to be successful are not the disciplines that I have to be creative. And I'm not saying managers aren't creative or that I don't have disciplines. But if you look at great CEOs uh, who have a kind of daily discipline, who uh, talk to the team, who schedule the team and uh, have a rhythm of both daily, weekly, monthly reporting, those are things that are critical to the success of a business. But those aren't my skill sets. I, uh, I have a much more variable life So I kind of thrive on complexity and variety, whereas many businesses' success comes from scalability and repeatability. You get a customer and you say, oh, let me get more customers like that. Or you build a product and you say, let me scale that product. That's the stuff of legends. It's just not who I am. More of a visionary versus an operator, potentially, is how I think about it? Well, that's the kindest that's the kindest way you could put of it. I, I would say I have some shortcomings and some strengths, and I try and play to my strengths and stay away from my shortcomings. Well, I know that uh, in our short time knowing each other three years, you went from six fifty to a thousand members of Tiger. Hey, a thousand thirty three, I think, as of yesterday. A thousand thirty three. I'm corrected here. Yeah. But I think you just thinking about what you just said, you leveraged others to do that. You partnered up with others. And you, you maintain very much uh, a close hand at operating in the future of Tiger, but operating it every day is uh, you've sort of partnered up with other people. Is that, is that fair to say? Oh, it's, it's more than fair to say. You know, uh, about four years ago, our board at Tiger, you know, remember Tiger is a group of relatively homogeneous. That's not exactly the right say it. What, what brings us all together is being successful primarily first-generation entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, we're spread out all over the world now. We're in five countries. We'll probably be in twice that many uh, in, a, in a very few number of years. And um, there's a lot of things. We have 80 groups that meet every month in 50 different cities. So there's a sort of pattern that each of those groups have to be serviced in a certain way. But the bottom line is that our board four years ago said the number one threat to Tiger's survival was Michael Sonnenfeld, because if something happened to me, we didn't have a clear succession plan in place. 
I was the sole owner. And that convinced me to seek out a partner. Uh, and I was really lucky to find uh, education growth partners who actually saw that we were part of an industry. I never knew we were even part of the education uh, and human development industry. I, I, that's just not something that was on my mind, uh, but they did. And uh, Peter Campbell, the partner there that I deal with, there are two partners there, but Peter uh, led the deal. And uh, when Peter was going to buy a part of Tiger, he said to me, you know, the prerequisite for our investment is that you're going to have to relinquish your duties as CEO. And can you handle that? And I was thinking to myself, are you kidding? Can I handle that? Where do I sign up? And the, the point was that we went out and hired a world-class CEO, Tim Daniels, who has skills that I never had. And uh, he's freed me up to kind of think uh, more uh, about ideas and the future of Tiger. Uh, I've always been a member. I'm a member first. So I'm more interested in the member experience and all of the incredible complexity that it takes to run a global organization, particularly through the pandemic, uh, is something that Tim uh, has done far better than I ever would have. Uh, but along the way, you know, we've had other senior people who've done extraordinary things. And Tiger now is a collection of innovations that have piled one on the other as happens in most organizations. So whatever the vision that was distinctive, I still sort of intellectually own the kernel, but the plant that has grown up around that kernel has been nourished by uh, many leaders that followed me. So there was a study that 20% of businesses fail in the first year and 50% fail within the first five years. So uh, what do you tell an entrepreneur who's thinking about starting a business about, and what risks should they be thinking about? Well, let's assume it's a great idea. Okay. <laughs> Sacrifice. I always thought of my businesses, not exactly like children, but as an entity that deserved loyalty and care and feeding. It wasn't something that I took from. It was something that I wanted to nourish uh, and help grow. You know, one of, the, one of the most important things is if you have a significant other, uh, whoever that might be, if that significant other doesn't appreciate the stresses and calling that you're in, that can be a real debacle uh, if you don't have the support or at least the acknowledgement of what you're going through. In my case, I'm about to celebrate my 45th anniversary, and I was lucky enough to marry a woman whose father was a very different kind of entrepreneur, but she just always understood that uh, you know, I'd like to think I put, the way I say it is I put family emergencies first. I put business second and the regular life of regular life third. And maybe that's not even has my priorities uh, right. But, you know, you have to have priorities. And, you know, as long as there wasn't a family emergency, I tried to organize my, my life in a way that I could support the businesses. Even today, I'm available 24-7. 365 to any of our senior managers. They don't believe that because many of them come from really large corporations where I guess they could only call their bosses between nine and five on Monday to Friday. And maybe on Fridays, they went golfing at noon, so you couldn't go uh, with them. But like I'm all in, I, I really believe that you have to be uh, all in. And, uh, you know, I think you have to, you have to sometimes uh, check your ego at the door. Uh, you have to 
be willing to build a team that uh, really um, can add to your idea in a way that you can take uh, great joy, not from having every idea, but from having planted the seed and helping everybody uh, grow the tree. You know, I think another part of it has to do with being realistic. And so looking at data to really understand when you're achieving what you set out to achieve and being realistic about how to change for the better or worse uh, and staying true to that. You know, one of the things that uh, in, in the book that I wrote that I talked about is if you took 100 people in any industry, and when I say industry, I don't mean just business, I mean academic, and you line them up from left to right, from least successful to most successful, using any metric that's reasonable. It doesn't have to be wealth or salary. It could be number of papers published. It depends, you know, each industry. The 50 to the right predominantly had mentors, and the 50 to the left predominantly have excuses for why they never could find mentors. And uh, Brandon, I think you and I have talked about this before, but this notion of mentors is, you know, as old as the human race. And mentors, you know, the the word mentor came from uh, Homer, who left his uh, son when he went to fight the wars that are in uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey with what was then called a slave, but he was really an educator. The name of that educator was mentor. And, you know, there's lots of different ways to mentor. But I would say um, I probably have had six or eight mentors over the last 50 years who each, oddly enough, was often the age of my father. I had a father, but they were parts of my father that uh, my father didn't share with me. And uh, each mentor was more important than next. And I'd like to think I've mentored a number of people uh, along the way as well. So I think that's, you know, when I think about, I went to the Sloan School. I'm very proud of being an MIT grad, undergrad and grad. But, you know, I spent uh, a year getting my master's degree. I I was there for four years and was able to get a master's degree and my undergraduate. But I probably could have eliminated that entire last year if I had a five-minute course and it said, get a mentor. If, uh, if, If I graduated and had that under my belt, I probably could have saved a couple of years of my career. Congratulations on your book, by the way. Thanks. Think Bigger and 39 Other Winning Strategies uh, from Successful Entrepreneurs. I mean, it's an incredible resource uh, for anyone who wants to learn about the journey and to learn from others. What, what was your inspiration for writing the book? And maybe, I think you already covered this, but is there two or three quick things that you would say are takeaways from the book? You know, I have the great blessing of sitting in tiger meetings, listening to some of the most successful people and thinking, what makes them tick? What what sets them apart? Are the people, when you're one in 10,000, are you just a lottery winner and there were a hundred other people who might've been there? It's not perfect because luck is, you know, luck is anybody who doesn't think luck uh, is a part of success is kidding themselves. You know, luck tends to favor those who are prepared and willing to take the risk. It just doesn't drop from the sky. You have to be in the right place. And when it's in front of you, you have to be willing to seize it. And those aren't easy things. So I think this whole notion of how do you get to be successful, and I've been able to witness about 2,000 people, not everyone at every meeting, obviously, 
but I think I have a better sense of sort of this notion. You know, it's amazing how many entrepreneurs are successful, but if you ask them what their own key to success is, they probably would get it wrong if there was a way to measure it. Because it's very hard to know unless you've really studied yourself and studied others who have succeeded and failed, what, what is it about you that has uh, allowed you to be uniquely successful? That's why you hear these stories of people who have one success. Uh, they're kind of a one-trick pony. You know, the thing that most frightened me uh, when I was 28 and I was developing the world's largest commercial renovation, my brother accused me of being a one-trick pony, and he said, that's it. Your career is going to be over by 30. I've probably spent the last 35 years trying to disprove him uh, of that. But that's, that's a very common, you know, if you look at a bell curve, the number of people who have one success and then people who have two successes, that's a very much smaller number. And by the time uh, you get to three successes, for those of you who understand stand, standard deviations and uh, bell curves, you're, you're pretty far down along the, uh, the line there. You know, one of the things that came up in the book a lot is this issue of children and the multi-generational nature of children. And uh, one of the things that I've observed is the likelihood that an entrepreneur will have a child of equal entrepreneurial ambition or skill is quite, quite small. That's not a negative because second generation kids can be just as ambitious as their parents, just as smart, but because they've grown up with the benefits that their parents provide, they might be a little more risk averse in their career assessment. They might not want to be out there on the risk quadrant hanging out, but they still might want to be a successful lawyer or a successful doctor or you know, a successful business person. Uh, and very often, uh, parents who are really driven entrepreneurs misunderstand the nature of their children's uh, great possibilities because they don't have the same risk-seeking ambition. And I, you know, one piece of advice is for entrepreneurs: appreciate your children for who they are. The likelihood is, if you've set a good example, they'll be just as ambitious as you. They just won't want to achieve success taking the same kinds of risks that you do. You know, another another piece of advice, again, for children, if you want to go in that direction, is uh, the question that we talk about in tiger groups all the time, which is like, one kid wants to do one thing and one kid wants to do another. When I had kids growing up, one was riding horses and one was playing lacrosse. I can assure you a lacrosse stick is a lot cheaper than a horse. So one of the things that really crystallized for me is that while parents are alive, they should be treating each kid according to their needs, of course, within the judgment of the parent. But if you don't treat your kids equally uh, in your will, you can leave terrible psychological scars about one kid feeling underappreciated or uh, less loved. That's really where it starts creating dramatic uh, problems. But even there, there's a very important exception to the rule, which is commonly held family values. The best examples of that is family setting up funds for children who go into public service or family setting up funds for kids 
who stay on the family farm or go into the clergy uh, or might want to be a researcher and cure cancer. But the point is, those kind of things allow families to differentiate what one child might inherit from another. But even that only works when it's values that have been expressed over and over again, so that by the time a parent dies, the children see the construction of the estate in the context of the values that they understood to be true. And and the last thing, which is kind of the biggest wow for me, is every, you know, if there's a discussion in Tiger 21 about children, it's the fear that a parent's success will screw up the kids, will make it too easy. And the biggest mistake that I perceive, although uh, it's not black and white, is you know, somebody who grew up in a really tough environment and has achieved extraordinary success raises their kids in the splendor that they can afford because they've had this success. And then they realize, oh, I've made it too easy on my kids. I have to make it tougher because I succeeded because it was really tough. So the kid graduates college or gets to a certain age and the parents like rip a rug out for me underneath the kid and say, you're on your own now. Show me what you can do. Well, you didn't prepare the kid for that. That's not, that's not a good thing. And one of our members once said, you know, I'm not going to give my kid anything. And I was thinking, here goes another one of those stories where I'm going to, you know, do tough love to really show my kids how to succeed. But then he said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not giving my kids anything, but I'm willing to invest everything in them. And it was such a beautiful reconnection. What he meant was, like, don't think of your kids as just sort of being members of the lucky sperm club and they're going to allow you to leave money to them and, and expect it. Make the act of transferring wealth accountable to goals. You know, if your kid wants to get an apartment in the city and you can afford to give it because it'll make their job easier and maybe make them more productive, or if your kid wants to go to graduate school, or even if your kid wants to start a business or proverbially buy a yoga studio, if it's not just seen as an automatic, but there has to be some kind of accountability and maybe the parent can also share their entrepreneurial skills if that's appropriate. I just think that's a fantastic reframing that really puts a, a great perspective on the best way to help kids understand the importance of what they're going to inherit. When do you introduce family meetings and how important are family meetings? Because you're, you're talking about preparing for and setting up your children for the success or the wealth that's going to be created. What's your thoughts on, on when that should start and how should they be conducted? So, you know, it's a little like uh, saying how, uh, how tall is a child. Every family is different. So you see from generation to generation, very often two or three generations impact on a child. But generally, I think to go to the heart of your question, I would say about 70% of Tiger members are of the opinion that you should wait as long as possible till you fully uh, disclose to your children the nature of great wealth if you've been lucky enough to create it. And to pick a number, let's say 30 years old, uh, there's about 30% of Tiger that's at the opposite end of the spectrum that believes, frankly, as I do, that when children inherit great wealth, the number one challenge 
is to teach them how to be stewards of that wealth, to be responsible stewards. So about 30% of our members uh, start integrating kids into family matters somewhere around college graduation and even before, but maybe not in the fullness of disclosure because how much can a 16 or an 18-year-old kid absorb? But my guess is, and I think this uh, would be borne out, if you take that 70-30 split, the 30% probably encompasses some of our wealthier members and the 70% less. And the distinction is when you reach enough wealth to have a family office, today, the break point for a family office might be 100 or two. It used to be $100 million, probably is $200 million today. All of a sudden, the amount of wealth that you're going to leave to your kids is going to truly impact their lives for their entire life. Whereas if you have a net worth which is extraordinary in its own right of 10 or 20 or $30 million, and you leave that money to two or three or four or five kids, that's not enough money in today's world uh, with low interest rates to stop them to pursue the careers because that will be a buffer. It will be a backup. It'll be a rainy day fund. But the lifestyle that they're going to lead is largely driven by their own success. Whereas at the much higher levels, the lifestyle that kids can lead, the, the things they can do is more driven uh, by their inheritance. Whether that's a good or a bad thing, I'm just saying that to the extent that your wealth is significant enough that it will impact not just the bank account or the rainy day savings or the emergency fund, but fundamentally the lifestyle of the child the sooner you should start teaching them how to be a responsible steward of their wealth, have them start thinking about philanthropy, about their own role, and how the wealth will do. But the one thing I know that's for sure is if a child of mine uh, had to decide whether to go into a business that they were marginally interested in because they needed to make a living or they wanted to be a researcher and cure cancer, or for that matter, be a teacher or help the poor, I'd want them to know that we have resources that can augment them so they can pursue their passion. And I think that's something that different people grapple with differently. I can live with that trade-off. If, if uh, you know, I once uh, said to one of my kids, I happen to be lucky, my, my father, although he was a German refugee, at the age of 23 was the chief interpreter of the Nuremberg trials. Pretty amazing for a 23-year-old, uh, the American prosecution uh, of the Nuremberg trials. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was the great war and he went, into, uh, went in and I said, you know, that was a form of public service. It had nothing to do with what his family's wealth is, had to do with his character and his patriotism. I'd like those to be what drive our kids to achieve the greatest things that they can achieve not the level of economic uh, success that they have to achieve. That doesn't mean they have to be unmindful, but I would like one meaning of our wealth is to allow kids to fulfill themselves to their greatest potential. 10%, I guess, is what I've, uh, is the, sadly the fact, family wealth survives to the third generation, only 10%. Yeah. You know, I think you talked about shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Yeah. By, by the way, 
the, the Japanese say rice patties to rice patties in three generations, and the Dutch say clogs to clogs in three generations. This is a universal theme. Right. So thinking about that issue, you got the first generation wealth creators, you got the stewards second, and then the third generation consumers. What is your advice for families that are going through this transition now? You know, it's so interesting because when you ask the question and when I hear it, we act as if we know people who are first and second and third generation. But you and I are 900th generation from some lineage, but we're only thinking about that in the context of wealth as opposed to the wealth of a reputation or the wealth of character or the wealth of education or social standing. So one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is when you think of capital, you'd be much better off of broadening the definition from financial capital to social capital, intellectual capital, and so forth. And in that sense, we're part of a much longer lineage than where the first generation that created the wealth that we have the benefit from uh, is. So I, I think that's a that's a really important part of it. But help me focus. What's the other part of it that uh, is of interest to you? No, I think that's helpful. I just I was wondering more. I guess what Tiger maybe we'll focus on what Tiger's doing. So you have a lot of first generation wealth creators, and there's the second generation clearly now engaged. And actually, I think you're attracting some of those second generation. What we've learned is Tiger is primarily focused on first-generation wealth creators. And we know that some of our members are second-generation inheritors, but who have become extraordinary managers of the wealth and in and of their own right have become competent uh, either entrepreneurs or investors so that uh, even they we can learn from. But in terms of children of our members, we provide different types of support, but primarily because their parents are members of Tiger and they want associated. But the purpose of our organization is not to support second, third, and fourth generation wealth inheritors because the personality type is completely different. When you're a child or a grandchild of a Tiger member, we do have lots of really great programs at our annual conference and so forth. And, and there's a lot more that we could do. But we've spent 21 years thinking about that moment of transition when somebody has been working and building a business for 10 or 20 or 30 years. They've had their nose to the grindstone. They really haven't been thinking about investing at all. And all of a sudden, they sell their business and they wake up one day and instead of having a thousand employees, you know, they have any number of millions of dollars, 10 million, 100 million, pick the number. And nobody's laughing at their jokes at the water cooler anymore because there is no water cooler. They don't have the employees. They're, they're waiting in line at Starbucks. They can't believe it. They used to uh, send somebody out for their coffee. And when you do that, the most interesting part of that is now you're an investor. How long do you think it takes for the average extraordinary entrepreneur to become a competent investor? What would you guess? It's an ongoing journey. I'd say five years. Bingo. It's five to 10 years. Nobody believes it. When most entrepreneurs, when they sell the business, are so overconfident in their skills because they're so used to being successful that they don't realize how much they've 
focus their efforts in a very narrow field. You know, it's like the difference between being in a dog track where you have a, a, a wall on the left and a wall on the right and a gun behind you. You just march forward. That's what being an entrepreneur is like. You know your industry. If you're in the paperclip industry, you know about metal, you know about staples, you know about you know where you're selling it, you you know all about it. But the minute you sell that paperclip company and you have 10 million or 50 million or 100 million dollars, now it's like being on a football field and you can go any direction. It's bewildering and the smarter you are, the harder it is because you figure like you have to master it. And it, that's really difficult. So it's that five to 10 years, that's the hardest part. And sometimes just setting that expectation is the most important thing that we can do so that people don't feel crazy at the discomfort just at the moment when they should be feeling great because they've achieved this extraordinary success. So as you, you know, as, as members are going through and from your experience with other entrepreneurs going through this journey, what's your advice to somebody that's actually about to sell? They run a large business today. They're going to make a, a lot of money. They're going to have wealth beyond their wildest dreams. What's your, what would be your advice to that individual? Take time. Slow down. You know, one of, the, one of the really interesting things is you sell your business and let's just say you make $30 million. I'm picking up a number after taxes. And the first year you're sitting in $30 million of cash. And if it was this year, all of a sudden, the markets are up, what, 15 or 18 or 20% this year? And you feel like the world is already passing you by. I can't believe it. I, I was sitting in cash and I should have invested all my money. Well, why is it that people who invested all their money, very few of them have $30 million and you have $30 million? Because entrepreneurial success comes in chunks and investment success comes in small bites. And my point is that that transition from entrepreneur to investor doesn't mean you can go being a world-class entrepreneur to a world-class investor and take a little time and most importantly, accept that in a low interest rate environment, you're probably going to have to take risks that you're not that comfortable with. So you're back to square one. You need a new PhD. You might have had a PhD in paper clips. Now you need a PhD in investing. And uh, obviously, uh, as you well know, we're agnostic as to whether people self-manage or use managers because some executives are hands-on and some are delegators and they both work if you know what you're doing. But getting a handle on what your plan is and setting some strategies, if you can be strategic in your goals, meaning how much do I want to leave my kids? How much do I want to live on advisors, including people in your own firm, you know, can help you start laying it out. But if you don't start thinking strategically, you can just go around in circles for a long time because you don't want scatterology. I, I used to invest small amounts of money in thousands of things or hundreds of things. That doesn't move the needle. And if you're too concentrated, you have too much risk. And, you know, how do I know that the right number is somewhere around 30 investments. Even I don't follow my own advice. I have more than that. But my point is, it takes a lot of work. And I think one of the, the most important thing uh, that I've noticed over the years is something we call sticker shock. Somebody sells a business in, I would say, 95 out of 100 cases. When somebody sells a business, they've sold it at a multiple that after tax, means the current income 
is a lot less than they were earning before. Just take a simple business that is making a million dollars a year, no small feat, but a business making a million dollars a year. And you know, if you're the business owner, you're not making a salary plus, that's what you're taking out of the business. And if you're lucky enough, you might sell it for seven or 10 times earnings. So you get $10 million. Let's even forget taxes on $10 million in a low interest rate environment. What are you going to make? Two or 300,000 a year and you were making a million before. Your income went down 70%. Obviously, there's an infinite number of variations of what I'm talking about. But I would say in virtually every case of an entrepreneur today selling a business, the passive income that they can generate on the net after-tax proceeds is dramatically less than what they were earning before, except now they have a pool of capital and they can do a lot of things. And that sticker shock, which is so obvious and so easy to understand, is the blind spot of so many sellers because they just haven't thought it through. And all of a sudden, when you have people who might have been making a couple million dollars a year and they get $20 million for a business, what they can earn on the $20 million, they're not even sure they can afford all the homes they have. And part of it is to learn that when you're an investor, you don't live off of income, you live off of a percentage of principal. Doesn't matter whether it comes through appreciation or income. And it's some people want the safety of having municipal bonds or some kind of fixed income. And each person has to find their own uh, way to be comfortable. But you know what we've learned at Tiger, the golden rule is the 2% rule in this environment. If you're living on more than 2% of your net worth on an annual basis, obviously certain types of income will produce better, you get better years, but 2% is kind of an infallible rule. If you don't spend 2%, it's kind of hard to go wrong. Of course, some people need more than 2%, but when they do over the long term, that may reduce their principal slowly uh, unless you get a couple of lucky years or you're a great investor. Shameless plug here for uh, the, what you're talking about. This is where having the right advisory team around you, pre-sale, pre-liquidity event, with the right models to plan out all of these different issues that you're talking about and have the right plan is really critically important. The face of entrepreneurs- Wait, wait, before you stop, I'm yeah. sorry. I couldn't agree more, but it's, it's for another reason. Most people don't realize all the planning techniques right. that you should be employing long before you sell your business. This is one of the least understood. I would say, I don't know the number, 50, 60, 70% think about what to do with their wealth after they sell their business. They might have 10 or 20 or 30% less than they would on the exact same transaction if they had been planning before. It's not just, you know, some of it is you can set up charitable uh, entities where um, a charity or a foundation will own part of the business so that you're not investing net proceeds, you're investing gross proceeds. But much more importantly, the most basic thing is very few people have the foresight to have future generations be partners in a business. And if future generations are the partners, the earlier you get it, the more the proceeds will be earned outside of your estate for the benefit of your children. If that's your goal, we could have a long discussion, you know, how much of that is your goal. Uh, but 
the bottom line, and I, I just want to emphasize your point, planning is so critical before the sale that uh, it's amazing. And one corollary we have is one of the things that happens when you achieve great success is you start saying, who do you work for? Are you working for yourself? Are you working for your foundation? Are you working for your alma mater or some other entity? Are you working for your children? But once you sort of make that leap, you then have to say, if I invest this way or organize that way, what creates the best outcome for that entity, my children, my alma mater, my foundation? And that changes behavior. What that means is earning a few higher points on an investment is inconsequential compared to getting the structure of your estate right. This is the most fundamental lesson. I can't stress it enough. And if there's one takeaway from this, people should realize that. That is the, the number one takeaway. Pre-planning for an event. Without it, uh, we have lots of examples where clients knew they should have done it. They didn't do it. And they paid a significant premium for that. So it was a significant cost for not doing it. So uh, thank you for emphasizing that because that that's actually our business. What you just talked about right there is helping clients prepare for that liquidity event in a way to maximize it fully for their family. So let's talk about the diversity of entrepreneurs. The face of entrepreneurs is changing. Uh, I was reading a McKinsey study that in 2030, American women are expected to control much of the $30 trillion that the, the baby boomers are basically controlling a woman. That's a second generation phenomenon. That's right. Me- meaning we our culture has now moved, not exclusively, but we're no longer a patrilineal descent, as is in Japan and other. Uh, most families, not all, are leaving equally to their children. So by definition, if you have two girls and a boy or three girls or whatever it is, women are going to be the largest or equal owners of inherited wealth, and that's changing uh, the face of, uh, of wealth for sure. Not yet so true in first generation. For instance, in Tiger, of our 1,000 members, I think we're getting close to 100 members who are women. And if you think about all of the universe of people who've created, let's just say on average, $100 million of net worth as an entrepreneur, uh, it's not clear that the 10% is not the right number. In other words, that's still an evolving uh, number, but somewhere between 10%, which might reflect the percentage of successful entrepreneurs that are women, and 50% or more, which is women who have inherited the wealth, is changing the face of wealth completely. Absolutely. And this is, as you would you know, obviously expect, the diversity for us at the bank is a number one priority. In all, in all areas. And our CEO, sure. Kelly Coffey, is leading that the very, very uh, you know, front and center industry leader in this particular space. How are you thinking about this? How are you evolving your membership? I heard you say 100. Sure. That's 10%. So how, what's the plan? I, I would say in, in a couple different ways. The first thing is DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, is kind of baked into our organization in pretty much everything we're doing. But last year, we started Uh, what we call collectives, where we have groups of member exploring issues of diversity. So diversity is is quite important in our staffing and uh, in our membership. You know, if I look today on every dimension of diversity, gender, color, religion, 
all of these areas, we're like the, a melting pot across uh, the country. And particularly in Europe, we have a huge uh, membership of color, women. Uh, we have a, a growing number of gay and lesbian members that are uh, fortunately out there and talking about issues in ways that all of us are learning from. And uh, it's just been amazing. And, and my basic insight is every group, as it becomes more diverse, gets better. There's just no question in my mind that that's the case. Let's talk about the future for a minute. What are you excited about? What's keeping you up at night? You know, the future is a knife edge uh, between opportunity and fear. And uh, on the negative side, uh, climate would be right up there, dysfunction in government, a uh, loss of faith in institutions, nuclear weapons, China, Iran, Russia. These are all uh, North Korea. These are all things that could get out of hand very quickly, and one can't discount them. Uh, but you can't be paralyzed. Uh, on, the, on the flip side is technology, technology, technology. We're in a pace of change right now where opportunities are opening up. It's extraordinary. One of the proudest things I've done over the last five years is build a sustainability portfolio and a team uh, with uh, colleagues of mine from MIT that I've recruited and Princeton and Yale uh, and even Harvard. And uh, I say that uh, with a smile. And uh, we have an amazing team. And when you look at the changes, uh, the ability to generate power from waves that are going up and down and the ability to use less uh, energy from types of insulation and more efficiency and uh, electric vehicles and even electric tractors that we're involved with. Uh, it's a whole new world out there. And um, so I would say that artificial intelligence is going to be one of the two or three major themes. I'd rather invest in it than be run over by it. And uh, climate is our particular focus. Uh, there's going to be two to five trillion dollars of investment a year over the next decade if we're going to rewire the planet to address climate. Uh, so this is perhaps the biggest investment theme or opportunity in the history of mankind. Uh, you know, I was just commenting this morning on a show that uh, people are talking about the end of gasoline as if it's a political issue. Well, fossil fuels were 29% of the broad market uh, a generation ago and they're three or 4% today. The markets, take out the politics, the markets have spoken. The end of fossil fuels is nigh. But a decade from now, we're going to be way down that uh, we have to be if we want to survive as a planet. Supply chain issues and inflation. Is this here to stay? What's your outlook on inflation? Are you, are you concerned? So, of course, the big debate uh, with inflation is it, quote, transitory, and really a reflection of the spring back from the pandemic and all of the swashing back and forth as things reorganize? Or have we fundamentally entered a period of uh, higher inflation? And the answer is, you know, productivity and technologies were the inflation killers. That's, that's how you keep inflation down. So there's a real race right now between technology and productivity to offset the inflationary pressures that are all around us. I'd say uh, the way most 
practical tiger members think about it is say, gee, as I sure hope it's transitory and sometime next year as Goldman Sachs today is predicting, uh, it'll be back to a more normal number, but we're in for some rough ride this winter. But I wouldn't bet I wouldn't bet the ranch on it. You know, I, I just want to leave one of the most important things that I ever heard, which was when Bob Rubin was Secretary of the Treasury, and he was at that time heralded as one of the greatest secretaries of the Treasury, although uh, Glass-Steagall may not have been his finest moment, the end of Glass-Steagall. You may feel a little differently about that, but uh, we've had some excesses in the, in the banking system. Fortunately, uh, you're part of one of the world's great banks uh, and, a, and a rock of uh, stability, which I deeply appreciate. But the point was, he said that all of the predecessors at Treasury, or most of them, were corporate leaders who had been successful by making the right bet. They looked at all the outcomes and said, this is what I think is going to happen and let's prepare it. He said, but I was a trader on Wall Street and I never knew what the outcome was. So I had to think of all the scenarios and then assign probabilities to each scenario and weight that in whatever bet I made. And I think that's the way to think about inflation. I think the higher likelihood is inflation is transitory. The lower likelihood is we're going to get increasing inflation for the next few years, but they're both possible. And anybody who bets everything on one or the other is a fool. So you need to have diversity in your portfolio. That's why our members have real estate on the one hand, a smattering, although it's very low fixed income, they private equity on the other, uh, and uh, public, public market exposure. You know, one of the things uh, inherent in what you're saying, although it wasn't precisely, in our most recent poll, 11% of our members' assets are in venture capital. It's the most extraordinary number I've ever heard because a decade ago, our total private equity exposure was 10%. Today, it's 24. And of that 24, 11 of those 24 points is in uh, venture capital. So we've gone from probably 1% or 2% 10 years ago to 11% today. All I know is inflation is, is one of the biggest threats we have, but technology uh, is an inflation killer and productivity is an inflation killer. And it's kind of like the anteater and the ant. Let's see who's going to win. Michael, I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for spending time with me and for the partnership here today and sharing your views, which I think are invaluable. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll subscribe to Conversations so you'll never miss an episode. We have lots of great guests this season who will inform and inspire you.